Hey everyone, it's Hallie here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. We are going to be talking a lot about death and dying and all the things around that since I'm interviewing Hospice Nurse Penny. Right about minute 12, we did take a detour that I had to cut out of the pod. So there's a good section that's may seem abrupt. I have a take two cut right in the middle of that. So when you hear that, it's when we come back to the conversation. So thanks for hanging in and I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. So this last couple weeks has been interesting. I was minding my own business at the Washington State Hospice and Palliative Care Conference when my coworker comes running up to me and says, oh my gosh, you'll never believe who's here. It's hospice nurse Penny. I say, what? No. (laughs) I run out and you know, in the age of social media, it's pretty common that you might run onto someone that you might know, but it's still weird to see someone in real life. So uh, I knew Penny was in Washington. I knew she worked in hospice, obviously. That's what drew me to following her on TikTok in the first place. Her accessible and thorough discussions of hospice and death and dying. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. But now, two weeks later, I get the privilege to interview her. So welcome to Penny. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to see you again. <laughs> yeah, likewise, likewise. So we know that you're a hospice nurse, but you've also been sharing your journey on TikTok with sobriety on social media. I yeah. wonder if you might share a little bit of your decision to be so vulnerable in a landscape that can be pretty freaking brutal behind a keyboard. Well, my motivation was actually a little bit selfish. My husband and I had made a decision to stop drinking. We have been trying to manage our drinking for years, and we made a decision to stop drinking. Uh, And I decided that if I was to put that out there into the universe and to my however many followers I had at the time, I think maybe a hundred thousand that that accountability would help me to stay sober Mm. and I also felt like it it, I you know one of my one of my um things about being on social media is gaining the trust of my followers talking about death and dying is a really sensitive subject and I want people to feel that they can trust me with that information that I'm authentic and sharing that sober journey was just uh, a little more was just another step in the direction of you know showing my authenticity I mean it certainly comes across I I think I probably would have trusted you regardless just because of our shared love of education of death and dying but yeah I appreciate that you're willing to put yourself out there and I can't even imagine I'm there's many times I'm grateful I don't have that many followers because there's plenty of people that just are on there to stir the shit, you know? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. The murdered by hospice Facebook loves to target me. Oh. I just had a comment this morning from somebody who said that my eyebrows looked funny and also hospice murders people, hospices, murderers, anybody who puts their family member on hospice is a murderer. And I was like, don't really draw the um, the comparison of my eyebrows to hospice being murders, but whatever. <laughs> people, people are just, they're just strange. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't really like, I get, I do get a lot of uh, hate from, from some people. And I wouldn't say a lot of hate, you know, I have a lot of followers who appreciate what I share on, on my social media posts So the majority of people are kind and compassionate and interested in learning about whatever it is that I want to talk about. And then there's a small handful of people that are hateful. And that is kind of to be expected. As you know, Hallie, working in hospice, there are people who think that we kill our patients. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't. But what's shocking to me is I will see people who are sharing their journey with children dying Mm. and they will get hate and it's just it's shocking to me there there's one um, woman that i follow who's 
daughter died at the age of 10. She had, um, I don't remember what the condition was that she had. It was a terminal condition, but she also had a facial deformity as a result of this condition that she had. And people were commenting that it was a good thing that she died and calling her a creature. And I was just, I can't even, like, what kind of a person does that? Who? It's its shocking and and um, and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, as the social worker side of me immediately is thinking, what the hell could have happened to someone to make them so hateful? And the petty side of me is like, I hope you get explosive diarrhea forever. Like, the, I don't understand <laughs> that kind of cruelty. Oh. Especially on TikTok. Yeah, so scroll, total you know? segue from sobriety down to pediatric death and assholes on social media. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that that was actually, I'll skip ahead and backwards all the time, but I mean, I talk about death and dying to, at nauseum to anyone that will talk to me. So it's nice to have someone that's in that same space as me. Uh, that does mean sometimes I jump into subjects that may be a little harder for people. Um, I try to give them a warning coming into the podcast, but um, you know, if they've been listening long enough, they know that I'm all over the place and we very well may go into the death and dying realm very quickly. <laughs> hey, speaking of warnings, uh, since you're a hospice social worker, maybe you can help me with this conundrum. So yeah. I often do videos where I'm, you've probably seen them where I show like what it looks like to die on TV versus what it looks like to die in real life. And then I pretend to be dead and I put a color filter on to make me look really dead, mouth hanging open, eyes open, fixed yeah. gaze. And people sometimes, and the majority of the response is always good. Like they, they like it, but then I'll have people who are like, you should put a trigger warning on that. And I always think two things. One, damn, I'm a really good actress. <laughs> <laughs> they think I need to put a trigger warning on myself when I'm alive, pretending to be dead. But also because I'm passionate about normalizing death and dying and all things related, I feel like it's defeating the purpose to put a trigger warning on there. So I don't know, like, what what is your um, perspective on that? Trigger warning or no trigger warning? You know, that's an interesting question. I was, um, the meeting I just left was a trauma-informed care meeting. And we talk a lot about activation, trying to move away from the word trigger, although trigger warning is still a good term because that's understood and people know what that means. Uh, but also, you're not necessarily showing or saying anything that should be activating because you're showing it as a natural process. You're not necessarily showing like the extremes. If you were showing, for example, when we're thinking about the, sometimes the different conditions that people have and they may be likely for a bleed, for example, and we're mm -hmm. telling our families that maybe we want some dark sheets, you know, or be prepared for this. That is not a, a typical natural death process. And so you're not talking about that in those kind of videos. You're talking about something that should be, and in other cultures many times is, very normalized. And so I have to side with you. I don't think that needs a trigger warning. Now, when you're getting yeah. into those more, you know, extreme or could be distressing cases. I mean, breathing changes sometimes, but just the way you say it is is not, you know, you're saying, hey, this is a possibility and we want you to know about it so that you're not as distressed if you didn't know about it, if, it's a, if it was a surprise. Right. Yeah, I feel like, and some people will say, oh, you just re-traumatized me. That's what my grandpa looked like when he died. And I always think to myself, dang, it's too bad nobody warned you that he was going to look different. You know, I yeah. mean, that's, that's the stance I take on it is this is normal and natural. And we have to change our perspective on what a, a naturally dying person looks like from it's going to be so scary to, yeah. to, yeah, this is just normal. They don't look alive anymore because they're dying. So it's it's normal. And the color changes and the mouth is open and the eyes are open. And, you know, there's some things going on. But I think being prepared for that is going to be helpful for people to be able to see that person still as their person, 
mm-hmm. and be with them. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, I can't say I've seen every single one of your videos, but I can't remember you ever just immediately breaking into a video. Like if I was scrolling, I wouldn't just see you in your dead face. So you're telling people before <laughs> they see it, they know who you are. They could scroll, you know. I don't think well, it I'm just disappointed that you haven't seen all 20,000 of my videos. <laughs> I feel like I saw a lot more earlier. But yeah, and, I, and also people will comment, hello, hashtag hospice, hospice nurse Penny is her name. How can you be, you know, surprised that she's talking about death and dying, you know, on her platform? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think people need to feel a little more empowered to keep scrolling. Not mm-hmm. everything's for you. Just move yeah. along. <laughs> yes, exactly. If it's not for you, that's okay. Keep on going. You don't need to tell me you're going to unfollow me. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, ugh. luckily I have avoided most of that. And I hope to stay under the radar for that. I'll keep my conversations in person. Well, I don't want you to stay under. I don't want you to stay under the radar. I want you to start like really putting out a lot of um hospice social worker content on the platforms because there's not that out there you know we have a chaplain or two and several lots of nurses now on social media uh, hospice nurses no hospice aides no hospice social workers i would love to (sighs) see you do that I, I appreciate your confidence in me. That sounds absolutely exhausting. <laughs> I know, <laughs> it is, actually. <laughs> I know how much work you're putting into putting out content, and I just don't know if I have that in me. I'm not even keeping up with the podcast for crying out loud. Um, as much as I, I'm not giving up on it, and I'm continuing to, I have ideas that I still want to put out. I was being pretty consistent with the pod for a while. And then I allowed myself to pull back and say, okay, I'm just going to put out, I'm not going to put out content just to put out content for the pot. That takes a lot longer editing process. It's only me. And so I wasn't putting out things just to put things out on a time frame. So I allowed myself to pull back, but then I pulled back a little too much. So now I'm jumping back in. I do think it's important work, but uh, yeah, I don't know where I'll be at for social media. I'll try, I'll try to put more out. Take two. Another thing that is a challenge on social media is that people will tag me in videos and want me to respond. Mm. And sometimes they're great videos. And a a good example of a, a really great situation was a woman who was quite young, had colon cancer, was scared. She put out a video saying she was terrified because she went on to hospice now and she knew she was gonna die. The video had 10 million views. I was tagged in it multiple times. And I just responded and said, it's normal for her. Cause people were like, help her, help her. And I said, you guys want me to help her, but there's nothing I can do or say other than it's normal for her to have fear mm-hmm. around being told that she's dying You know, anybody I would, and I'm death positive, you know, so that is normal. And uh, so that was helpful, but then I will be tagged in videos for people who are maybe not terminal but pretending Mm. that they are. Oh, no. There there was a woman who was pretending that she was going to do VSED. And for those who don't know, VSED stands for Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking. Talked about going on to hospice. People were wanting me to help her because the hospice, she couldn't find a hospice to take her. And I was like, I'm not touching that. Because as I looked at Reddit, I found out that this same woman woman several years ago pretended she had cancer and raised ten thousand dollars to buy a jeep so i was like Mm. i vet people really closely if i'm going to promote them i'm very Mm -hmm. careful about who i promote as far as you know i've done gofundmes uh i've raised you know hospice nurse julie and i raised over ten thousand dollars for a memorial service for for a young woman who died of cancer last year i think it was I recently promoted another young woman who's a single mom with four kids. She has cervical cancer. I actually think she's died now and nobody has updated the GoFundMe, but helped her to raise $50,000. You know, so I loved that to me is the best kind of social media influencing. Like when I can get people to help others. And then I also just posted 
for some horses that I had to rescue for my neighbor from my neighbor uh, who has cancer and no family. And then the, the dogs. Um, I don't know if you saw those videos. She had, I think she had nine dogs altogether. We ended up with one of the puppies. I got a local animal rescue to come. And even though they were at capacity, they made it work to come and get those dogs. And so mm -hmm. I created a GoFundMe for them. So that type of thing for me is the most rewarding kind of social media influencing. I love doing that, but I have to be careful. And mm -hmm. there is a video that somebody did recently of a woman talking about seeing angels or seeing heaven or something. I was tagged in that video a hundred times. <laughs> I just saw that one this morning. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, whoa. Yeah. And people are, is it real? And I finally was like, all right, I can't ignore this one. I'm just going to go have to respond to it. And like, I don't know if it's real. Yeah. I'm not clairvoyant. I'm a hospice nurse, you know? <laughs> you don't have all the showing. answers. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had patients say they see beautiful things, you know, but is she really seeing heaven? I don't know. It depends on your perspective. Right, you know? right. Maybe for her, she was. Do I think she was? Mm, I don't really believe in heaven. But I thought I think she saw something beautiful that brought her peace and comfort at the end of her life. And in fact, she died the next day. You know, so it was a beautiful thing for her. Yeah. But it's it's just interesting how people will, you know, they want me to weigh in on things and, and have all the answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes if I'm doing a live and people hop in and they don't know who I am, they'll ask me something about the spirit world. And then somebody who follows me will say, she's not a medium. She's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I just bouncing back real quick to the uh, me talking about death and dying to anyone that will listen constantly to my relatives dismay, I'm sure. I wonder if you also talk about this. You know, it seems to be across the board, people that come to hospice and we do tend to try to educate and help people understand and get to a good place. Is that something that you also do outside of work and social media? I do. I do. But I was a little shocked one day when I don't remember what the discussion was about. My husband and I were talking about somebody dying and, and he said, and he said, I thought hospice was really only supposed to be for the last couple of days when they're really close to dying. And I was like, hmm. what? <laughs> We've been married the whole time. I've been a hospice nurse, 19 <laughs> years. How did you not know that? I mean, I've talked about my patients with him, you know, not, of course, not breaching any privacy, but he, he, maybe I only have talked about them when they were close to the end of their life and never talked about those that were on service for three years, you know, right, right. But it was a little shocking to me, but in uh, full disclosure, I have been after him to fill out his five wishes forever. I cannot get engage him in that. And I've told him, I've threatened him with, you know, I'll make the decision for you, buddy. <laughs> like, I'm just going to tell him, pull the plug unless you tell me what you want you know so I, we're starting to have a little more conversation about it but it's been it's been hard my my family gets more of it from me than he does you know my 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 daughter uh is a social worker and yes. uh, she's especially interested in in it because she wanted to be a hospice social worker but where she lives in North Carolina there isn't a hospice agency that is nearby. And so she ended up working. Um, she does therapy at an elementary school and works in a juvenile detention center. And it was really up her alley to do that. But but it is her dream to work in hospice someday. And both of my daughters, when they were teenagers, they went and volunteered at the hospice care center that I had worked at previously. Like I worked there for five years and then I worked at another one and then I went to home, uh, home hospice case management. Um, so by the time they were teenagers, they went and volunteered at the hospice care center that was three blocks from our house. And uh, they did like the ice cream card and they worked with, um, they have a teen program there where they work with kids and they both are musicians and Mia would play the piano in the lobby and Eden would play her guitar and sing to patients. So they, they, and they were prepared for that because I did talk to them a lot about my work. I was always Mostly it was like we'd be in the car and I'd hear a song and I'd say, hey, when I'm dying someday, remember this song is something I want to listen to. And they would be like, mom, don't talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I had my own kind of childhood and I'm putting this in quotation marks, trauma 
when my grandfather died and my mom explained death to us by saying that when somebody dies, they go to sleep and they don't wake up again. And, and that really created a lot of anxiety in me. And I had severe death anxiety when I was, you know, even in my thirties, I mm. had severe death anxiety. It was crippling for me and becoming a hospice nurse helped me get over that. And so I didn't want my daughters to have that same fear around death and dying because it's so unknown and because we don't know how to talk about it. So I did really talk about it with them a lot. And when my dad died, I actually called my husband in the middle of the night and I said, you know, bring the girls. I want them to see my dad. He died in the hospital and bring them here. I want them to see what he looks like when he's dead. I want them to, and they have no like that happened years ago. They're both like Eden is going to be 30 soon. And me, I just turned 27 or yeah, 27. <laughs> when I asked them recently about how that impacted them, their memory of seeing my dad is not traumatizing to them at all. Hmm. Um, their memory of the whole situation is how wonderful it was that we were all together as a family and we stayed together and grieved together for three weeks after his death. That was the most impactful thing for them about that whole experience. So mission accomplished. <laughs> I'm shocked you went into hospice after having that kind of anxiety. Was it like a, I, you know, it's strange exposure but, therapy so, for you? <laughs> well, it ended up being that way, but that wasn't originally my intention. So back to my sobriety, I got sober earlier in my life for, I was sober from the age of 27 for eight years. Uh, I was a drug addict. I was addicted to cocaine. I was an alcoholic. I went to jail several times. I was not a contributing member of society. Then I turned my life around. And by the time I decided to become a nurse, which was a result of my second husband and I making a decision to get divorced, and I had been a stay-at-home homeschooling mom and I needed a job. So I looked in the newspaper and saw, hey, nurses, you know, uh, I should go to nursing school. And so at that time, and that was back in, so I've been a nurse for 20 years. So 2003-ish. At that time, there was two things going on. One, there was a lot of uh, abuse going on in nursing homes. Like all of a sudden, they were talking about abuse going on in nursing homes. And two, um, we had experienced the death of my husband's stepmother from cancer on hospice. And it was a very rapid very rapid uh, decline, like from diagnosis to death was less than three months. It mm. was just boom. And she went to Evergreen Hospice in Washington, the care center, which is phenomenal. And I was just amazed by those nurses. And I felt like having this past of being like a ne'er-do-well loser, I kind of wanted to do something that I really considered service work. And so for me, it was either going to be work in a nursing home where I could maybe make a difference or be a hospice nurse because I was so amazed by those hospice nurses, their compassion, you know, and their dedication to the, to their um, job and ability to be with people who were dying. And so, uh, and so that's kind of how I, I made the decision um, really more. It was like, okay, so then how do I get into hospice? And I was an LPN first, and I didn't think LPNs could even work in hospice. I didn't know better. They can. Spoiler mm -hmm. alert for anybody who's an LPN <laughs> who wants to work in hospice. Yeah. Um, and so I went and worked in a family practice clinic first for a year. And then I decided, okay, I need to become an RN, and I want to be a hospice nurse. And so I went to a hospital for a couple months, and they did this layoff that they do of LPNs every, every 10 years. Meanwhile, there was a hospice care center that was about to open in the neighborhood. And I thought, what the heck? Um, I should just go see if they hire LPNs. And I went in there and they hired me. And I have never stepped away from hospice since. I just kept going through, you know, RN, BSN, um, you know, all the certifications and have stayed in hospice the whole time. So it was just kind of like opportunity opportunity and then that desire to really feel like I was going to make a difference in people's lives. I love it. I love it. And we're glad that you did. <laughs> that Thank was you. a fortune opening the door for us in the future 
to know that you are going to be coming down the pike and helping educate people about death and dying, which I know I'm very personally grateful for. You were mentioning some misconceptions and myths. What do you think the biggest misconceptions or myths around hospice are? I know there are, I have a whole platter of them. I know. And whenever somebody asks me that, it's like, well, I think it's this. And then I'm like, no, it's got to be that. I mean, there's some <laughs> that are just so closely tied, right? So I would say the biggest myth is that hospice causes people to either die or die faster. Yeah. And then you can like go into, we starve them to death. We withhold all treatment. We give them too much morphine and then they die. You know, like you can separate that out into the littler parts of that big myth. But that's definitely the biggest one. And then I, there's also, see, I have to go with the platter too, Haley. I know, because I, I know. I like, and then there's also that they can't be a, um, full code and be on hospice <laughs> or or that um, people are put on hospice like that they don't elect it which is what they do but that they're forced to go on hospice or that hospice does 24 7 in-home care uh. um, right <laughs> or that hospice is for the last days of last life. days yep. yep yeah so there are so many myths and you know and i address them all the time <laughs> Yeah, I, I do tend to the probably the ones I address the most are the morphine or the starvation. And then mm -hmm. I do a lot of videos, too, about um, like the trauma of CPR demonstrating, you know, like what pe I did one video, like what people think CPR looks like. And I just kind of softly pushed on someone's chest and the person perks up and they're all good again. And then I do the what it really looks like. And you're actually, you know slamming down on their chest with your fists basically or your hands you know trying to resuscitate and because I, I think and and then people will always say hey you know why would they be a full code and go on hospice and then that gives me the opportunity to talk about the fact that we don't like that but we also are aware of the fact that doctors don't want to have that discussion with their patients and if we refuse to admit them to our services then they're going to go through something traumatic. Whereas if we bring them on, we can continue to have conversations with them. And I'm sure you've had those conversations, Hallie, a million trillion times. <laughs> and yes. in my experience, almost all of the time, they change their mind and they become a DNR. And if they don't, when they die, the family just calls hospice and doesn't make a start CPR or they don't call 911. It's like, mm -hmm. I've had a few patients who had to go to the hospital and revoke their, um, their benefit because they were declining and the family was concerned, but I've never, ever had a patient who I had to do CPR on. I've never had to. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. A million times, so many times. And mm -hmm. it's, it's important because death and dying and end of life conversations are just barely seeping into doctor education now you know as schools are changing and evolving and geriatric care even doesn't necessarily talk about end of life so they're starting to that's starting to be more prevalent and more common but i've been called to a hospital to do an informational visit and was you know they knew i was coming it wasn't a surprise the the hospital the doctor walked in 5 minutes before me and gave them their prognosis i lost my shit. I mean, not in the patient's room, of course, I went in and gave them information. <laughs> but uh, immediately, there was a resident sitting outside the room. And I said, don't you see what just happened? Don't ever do that. Don't do that. Don't give people no time to process what they just heard, which is a prognosis that was very short. And mm -hmm. then I come in and tell you about hospice, you didn't hear anything I said. Because yeah. how could you? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. doctors just still do, they, they're just so focused in the world outside of hospice of treatment, 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 yeah. treatment. I had a doctor call me one time, an oncologist, when I was working at the care center, and he called to check on his patient. And I said, she died. And he said, she died? Really? <laughs> and I was thinking, like, what? How could you not? What? And then I had another patient who was 28 years old 
and she had colon cancer and she came to our care center GIP for, um, she was uh, impacted and we had to clean her out and everything. And then I was packaging her meds up. I was at the nurse's station and she came out in her little pink fluffy robe, holding her cup of coffee, looking all cute. And she's, and I said, Oh, hi, I'm just getting your meds ready for you to go home. And she took one look at the pile of medications and started to cry and said, those are all for me. I wasn't on anything before I came here. And I said, well, I know, but we don't want to see you, you know, get constipated again. You know, the doctor thinks that you have weeks to months and she freaked out. Cause no one had said months. that before you. Yeah. The doc doctor told my oncologist told me I had a year. Uh. Like, oh, how can you tell somebody that when you're putting them on hospice at the bare minimum is let them know they have six months or less, you mm -hmm. know? I've gone out on admission visits or done informational visits and said, what do you understand about your disease process? Never been Nothing. told. Never been yep. told. Yep. Yep. I had a guy what? that rolled into the care center actively dying. <clears throat> and I said to the wife, has anybody given you an idea of when he might die? And she said, no. And I really want to know. And I said, don't leave. He's yeah. probably going to die. And he did. He died in a few hours after that. And she was so thankful that I told her most of the time. People are thankful when you tell them. Sometimes they don't want to know. Sometimes they're like, nah, I don't want to know. But, you know, most of the time, if you ask them, do you want to know what I think? They yeah. usually are, are wanting to know. You yeah. Know? Or, or even sometimes they'll initiate the conversation. What do you think? How long? Mm -hmm. And I know I've had many conversations when I worked at the care center where I would be talking to somebody who lived far away and they'd say, well, I, I'm just trying to figure out when I should come my vacation, you know, like I I'm trying to figure out when's the best time to take vacation or whatever. And I'd say your person is on hospice. That means they have a life expectancy of six months or less. If I tell you that I think they have two weeks left, they're not going to be awake for that, that whole time. They're going to slip into an unresponsive state and you will not be able to have a conversation with them. So sooner is always better than later. You will never regret coming to see somebody who's on hospice and then they don't die as soon as you thought they would but you <laughs> will regret it if you don't go there yeah. you know and speaking of regrets and not being with people that's another thing that I have found is a common theme that um thankfully I, f I feel fortunate that I'm able to kind of assuage people's guilt over is not being present with their person when they die. I hear that a lot. I wasn't there. I stepped out for five minutes. They died. I feel so guilty. I wanted to be there. I couldn't make it. And, um, t you know, just letting them know how often we see that it's like yeah. people can choose their time of death. And if they wanted you to be there or they needed you to be there, they would wait for you because I've seen it both ways. I've seen them wait for people yeah. to arrive or to even call on the phone. And, and more times I've seen them wait for people to leave and then die. It's like they, mm -hmm. they need to be alone to be able to, you know, finish the journey. Just recently, I've been thinking about my anecdotal experience with people, usually older people, that are just so insistent they are ready. Why hasn't God taken me? I'm ready to go. And those are the ones that stay longer. And it is my anecdotal hypothesis that that fight is still so much there. That anger that they're not gone is actually what's keeping them. I can't prove it. Well, I don't know. But that seems I to be the case. It's funny because people who are in their 90s and their hundreds really can linger like that. And I always say they didn't get to be that old for nothing. Yeah. They've got some kind of will and determination. But I also love this saying that I, I heard from somebody, and I know I don't know who originally said this, but that there are two sides of dying. There's the spiritual and emotional side, and there's a the physical side, and both have to meet before death can occur. Yeah. And so sometimes people are like ready emotionally or spiritually but physically they're not but I like your hypothesis too is that anger keeps them here just like so you know when we talk about morphine and how morphine doesn't hasten death but it facilitates death in that somebody who's really having a crisis of pain or shortness of breath is not able to relax enough to let go they're just right. not able to die when they're like uh, you know 
too much in too much pain. And so when we give them a medication, morphine, oxycodone, Dilaudid, whatever we use, it's not always morphine. Mm-hmm. Um, it is able to bring them the comfort that they need to relax and die. Yeah. I just feel like there is something to be said for a need for peace for people to die when it's a natural death like that. Obviously, people can die suddenly, you know, without having that happen or traumatically. But even the ones, the rare times when I've had a patient who said, I'm ready to die and then they die there still is kind of this acknowledgement of peace and acceptance that happens. And my dad was like that. My dad told the nurse, I'm about ready to hang it up. And then he died minutes later. I mean, Mm -hmm. like he didn't go through this long drawn out process. You know, he, he just, he just said, I'm, I'm ready. And then he died. So even then, you know, you know that there's that physical and spiritual uh, meeting that occurs for them to be able to die. I like that. The two sides that, that I think I will incorporate that in helping family members, not just the patients, but family members understand why lingering is happening. Cause you know, I, I oh, can't choose oh, that. I can't one. make it I happen. Have, I have another one for you. This is mine. I came up with this on my own. Lingering does not equal suffering yes. for the person who's dying yeah. for the family. It's hard because when they're watching the dying going on, they get to a point. Well, first of all, it's anticipatory grief, right? We know that. Here's another one that's not mine. Like anticipatory grief is like being forced to watch a whole movie, even when you know the ending and it's not good. Like Mm. that's anticipatory grief. And I love that. But watching somebody knowing the outcome and just dreading the outcome, but also feeling like you just want it to be over. Mm -hmm. And so- they're in this holding pattern where they feel like they're suffering. What they're just lingering. They're su- no look at they're comfortable. They're they're just death takes as long as it takes, and sometimes it takes a while. And we don't know what's going on in the mind. We don't know if they're doing life review or processing. We don't know, you know, what's happening. But it's okay as long as they look comfortable. You know, yeah. they will die soon enough. Lots of conversations uh, around that for sure. Yeah. I also like, and I'd love to know how you feel about this um, because I always say many of the hospice professionals that I have worked with in my career have a feeling of when people are dying, there seems to be sometimes like this back and forth of being present here and then being somewhere else, wherever that is, which of course we don't know. Mm-hmm. But like there does seem to be these two, like they're in between, some people call it like lifting the veil, which I love that idea. You know, I don't know if it's real or not, but I kind of love the sentiment of it. But there there definitely does seem to be like they're here and then they're somewhere else and then they're here again and then they're somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I, I've said that to people too, like <clears throat> when I'm talking about when families are anticipating they're probably going to be alone at the time of death. How do you know? How do we know when they're dead? And I, you know, go through the physical attributes that I'm talking about, but I'm also like, you can tell when that, whatever it is, soul, spirit, light, energy is not in that physical body anymore. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, there is something different and so it it's not too much of a stretch for me to think about that in between time where your your physical body is getting ready to meet the spiritual and and be done. Yeah. Yeah. I I same thing. People ask me, have you ever seen the spirit leave? And no, I've never seen it, but you feel it. There's just something in the room. There's some kind of an energy shift that happens mm-hmm. when they die. But also even before that when they get to that point where they're actively dying, the eyes are open and you know, it's like the lights are on nobody's home. Mm-hmm. And I had a nun tell me early in my hospice career. In fact, the very first video that I did on TikTok that went viral, that made me realize that people want to know about death and dying was telling a story about this nun who um, told me that the patient's spirit had left and the body was still doing the work of dying. And you could see that in her eyes. And as soon mm. as she left, I walked in there and I peeked at that patient and I definitely got that sense of the lights are on. Nobody's home. The eyes were open. 
and you know there was like no focus they were just glazed over and I love that idea that you leave your body and your body still does the work of dying but even if that's true there still is that different feeling when they die mm -hmm. of like that inner shift maybe they're in the room I don't know maybe they're hovering over their body and yeah. then when the body finally dies, they leave the room and then you feel the spirit is gone. Yeah. I mean, we certainly encourage people to always talk to their loved ones, assume that they can hear you. And maybe there's a, a part of them still tethered to that physical, you know, corporate. Yeah. Being. yeah. Well, I mean, there has been a couple studies done that indicate that people can most likely hear up until the time of death. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I love it. And my social worker, my team social worker used to always say, even if they don't understand, understand the words, they feel the intent. Yeah. Like, yeah, for sure. I am keeping an eye on the clock and being mindful, even though we went off script and this won't be quite an hour that we're talking. <laughs> um, so we'll have to schedule some time again. My partner wanted to me to ask you if you were born and raised in Washington, are you a Washingtonian? I consider myself a Washingtonian, but I was actually born on Guam. Oh. My dad was in the military. So the, most of my life I've spent in, in Washington. I've lived in Okinawa. I've lived in California. I've lived in Oregon. I lived in Connecticut. I lived in Florida. I had a, <laughs> a period of time where I was just trying to find home. Um, but mostly I um, have been in Washington and I was raised in Oak Harbor, Washington on Whidbey Island. That's where I graduated high school. And then I spent many, many years living in Everett, Fort Lewis, Lakewood, University Place area. And now I'm in Eastern Washington. What drew you that so far? That's a lot different climate over there. What drew you over there? It is. Uh, so we had this property in the mountains that we camped on in a cabin that we had been building and, you know, just over the years made it into like this really beautiful place to be and decided that we would like to retire here someday. I love Four Seasons. I don't like all the rain in Western Washington. <laughs> we get a, we get a lot of rain in Eastern Washington, but also we get a lot of snow and the snow makes me very happy. If it's going to be cold, I want it to be bright and beautiful hmm. and snowy. And I love the heat in the summer, although sometimes it gets a little much when you're <laughs> off the grid and you don't have an air conditioner. But we just, through COVID, my position became virtual. I'm a hospice quality manager now. I don't do patient care anymore. And my husband, we just figured it was kind of the right time for him to retire and sell our house. The market was good and just pull the trigger and move here. And so um, now social media has enabled me to cut my hours back at my real job and uh, work three days a week for my real job and do my social media for the other other couple days and weekend and nights and every all the other times <laughs> <laughs> that it takes to do social media. I know it's a beautiful Kudos to you. Acres and it's, it's amazing. And a cat, right? You still have your your cat wandering around, uh, or I have Pam the cat and Pam the now cat. We have Kevin the puppy that we rescued. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I did see that recently too. Very cute puppy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cute, and he's a puppy, so puppies are hard. <laughs> That's also a lot of work. <laughs> yes, it's a lot of work. I haven't had a puppy for 20 years. And wow. Yeah. And he and he's Pam and, and Kevin are trying to navigate some semblance <laughs> of a relationship. I don't know how it's going to go. It's, it's, it's been a little bit challenging, but we'll see how it works out. As long as they can coexist. They don't have to be best friends. That's that's where I'm at with it. And I I keep thinking if she would just nail him once, you know, across the nose, he would probably be put in his place. But it's it's funny. I he chases her and and she acts scared and she hisses and growls. But then she'll walk right up to him and touch his nose with her nose. And yesterday <laughs> she was laying on a chair and he walked by wagging his tail and she started pawing at his tail like it was a toy. And so it's it's interesting that it's it's a. I think it'll be okay, but it's still stressful. I don't like him barking at her and chasing her. That really worries me, but he's a little bigger than she is. He's a couple pounds bigger than she is. And he's yeah. got some needle teeth on his. Ah, uh, the puppy teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He got me this morning. He's, he can be real aggressive, but we try to give him a little break. He, he and his one sibling 
had been in a um, very small kennel with a cement floor and virtually no shelter by themselves with no human contact really to speak mm. of for almost probably 10 and a half weeks uh, before we rescued him. Wow. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's a complicated situation. The owner, it, the owner has terminal cancer and family that doesn't want anything to do with her kids that don't want anything to do with her. And I'm okay with that. I say that all the time on my social media. Like if you're not obligated to go and be with somebody just because they're dying, you don't have to forgive somebody. And if you feel like you need to forgive them, that's okay too. But you don't have to go there to forgive them if it's a toxic relationship. And so, you know, I have to put my money where my mouth is and say, I respect their decision to not be involved, but also on some level, I have compassion for her as a human. And I feel bad that she is by herself and has nobody and she's got mental illness and she's alienated herself from the community. She's paranoid. She's a hoarder. She's hoarded animals. She hasn't treated them great, mm -hmm. but she was willing to do the right thing and give them up. So I've just found myself really trying to help her and you know those are the kind of patients that were always my favorite for some reason the the really challenging ones like there's something that just draws me to them maybe it's just like just sadness for their lives and how they really have nobody and and they just become really endearing to me and also I feel like I'm able to just really be real with them you know, she was trying to give me one of her dogs that's a, a an older pug. And I said, I don't want that dog. That dog is ugly as shit, you know, and, <laughs> and she, you know, and she laughs about it and, and I can make her laugh and I can just be really real with her. And when we were waiting for the animal rescue to come and she had four dogs in a pen that was maybe 10 by 12 cement floor, no cover whatsoever, no shelter mm. or going into winter it was 17 degrees one night. Their water was freezing constantly. She wasn't feeding them. Me and some other neighbors were going by and throwing food. She did give me money to feed them. So I went and bought dog food. and I But they went for four days with no food. Mm. So, so we were there waiting for, and she's a widow, by the way. Her husband died of cancer two years ago. And it's a hard life. I mean, it's a really hard life. She Her main house is on property where there's no power and she heats with wood and she's too sick to keep the house warm. So she moved down to a lower property where there's a 12 foot trailer, no bathroom. It's got a bedside commode sitting outside the door where she's going to the bathroom. Uh, mm. But she has heat because there's power. So we're up there at the main house uh, standing outside the kennel. And she went into the kennel with the dogs and waiting for the animal shelter to come rescue the dogs. And, and she said, you know, Doug wanted me to have these puppies so I wouldn't be alone. Mm. And she started crying and she said, and now I can't even take care of them. And I was just like, I mean, I was like, don't cry. <laughs> and I had to say, no, it's okay to cry. It's okay. You know, like, of course it's sad, but I just, oh my God, my heart just went out to her. Mm -hmm. And then I was mad because as they rounded these dogs up which was no easy feat because they all busted out of the kennel and they had to round I couldn't believe they were able to round them all up she ended up surrendering five of them but then she just kept like putting off signing the paper to release them and I just had to keep saying focus sign the paper and she's like well I'm thinking I need to keep because she still has other dogs running loose on the property I'm thinking I need to keep one of these because this dog's going to be stressed out now because they're all leaving and we were just like just sign the paper let him go he's not going to be stressed he's going to be fine and just like oh my god this is the right thing to do you just have to do this and she oh. she did sign the paper and she let them go but it was it was really hard it's her family you know and and my heart just goes out to her so well that whole segment can be our next conversation because moral distress and toxic relationships and abuse that's that's all in a social work wheelhouse right there so uh yeah. we'll save that for next time all uh, right sounds good two two final questions one what advice would you give to people wanting to get into nursing slash hospice like why would people pick a nursing track other than your specific story you know why why is it good for the nurses to get into hospice so for, for you mean nursing in general and then nursing in hospice? Yeah, I think I asked like five questions in that question. So <laughs> however you want to answer that. <laughs> nursing in general is a very, very good um, 
if you can do it, if you have the wherewithal to be a nurse. And there are, first of all, it's really versatile. There are many, many, many different fields of nursing that you can be in. You don't even have to always necessarily be in one where you're doing patient care. There's administrative nurses. You know, there's lots of different, you will never be unemployed. It's a great, it's a great gig. I mean, and it pays well eventually, you know, it it doesn't pay well at first, but eventually it does. And, And it's a great, it's a great job. And if you don't like the area that you're in, again, so much versatility, you can do something else. So I really think nursing is a great career. And I think if people are drawn towards it, they should pursue that. I also want to make a pitch for never thinking you're too old to be a nurse. I was 40 when I went to nursing school. And when I was in nursing school, there were 50 year olds in my class. So you're never too old to to go back to school and you're never too old to go back to nursing or to go to nursing school. As far as hospice nursing, it's something that, first of all, a lot of new grads will ask me about being a hospice nurse. And I always say, I do not recommend it for nursing grads unless you can go to a hospice care center, which is what I did um, with only a year of nursing in a clinic under my belt and a couple months of med surge. You're with people who can mentor you and you are learning as you are there about dying and the dying process and and all the skills that you really don't have when you're in nursing school. You, you don't have skills. People will say, don't go work in a clinic when you graduate, you'll lose your skills. I'm like, I gave a shot to an orange and I put a Foley in a dummy. I have no skills to yeah, learn yeah, yeah. or to lose. So as far as being a home hospice nurse, I do not recommend it for, for new grads, aside from the fact that you have to have excellent skills like putting in a Foley, like giving shots, like programming an infusion pump, accessing a port, wound care, and you are out there in a vacuum really doing this by yourself. Like I always say, trying to put a a Foley into a patient who's sitting in a recliner is not easy. Aside Mm -hmm. from those skills that you need to have and probably don't as a new grad, you need to have the skills to not only identify the signs of a person transitioning, a person actively dying, but you need to have the skills to have conversations with families about what is happening. And that happens over time. You know, you you don't get that in nursing school. You don't, you don't get taught how to talk about death and dying in nursing school. (laughs) Right. You might get like an hour's worth of lecture about hospice, but you don't get that. So I really, really, really strongly recommend people who want to be nurse in hospice to do New med surge, or actually my favorite three to recommend are oncology, ICU, or long-term care. I think those three are the best backgrounds for going into hospice. Yeah, good call on that for sure. Yeah. And then finally, where can people find you on all of the places? <laughs> so my username is at hospice nurse penny, all one word. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. Well, Penny, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to future conversations and possible things that may come. And thank you so much again for being here and doing what you do. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. And I love to remind people at the end of the podcast, we're talking a lot about death and dying here, but the whole point of this podcast is really to remember to live because someday we'll all be dead. (laughs) 